My hometown of St. Louis is an awesome baseball town. For those of you who know my story, you know that story. You know the impact of the St. Louis Cardinals and Jack Buck and baseball on my life. You also know it's a phenomenal hockey town. And for those who have read the book On Fire or know the impact of the St. Louis Blues, not only in this community, but also on a little boy named John O'Leary, you know that it's a hockey town as well. What you may not know is the town keeps expanding. We are now, drumroll please, a soccer town as well. That's right. We've been a soccer town for a while, but now it's official with MLS moving to St. Louis. And our friends at Keeley Companies are proud construction partners in building the new stadium, downtown St. Louis, focusing on applying their extensive building experience, their commitment to developing, and then implementing a successful workforce development with diversity inclusion. Keeley Companies CEO and my friend Rusty Keeley said this, we are honored to be part of the project of creating a positive legacy in St. Louis. Learn more about that project and other projects going on at Keeley Companies by visiting them right now online at KeeleyCompanies.com. Welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. John is the number one national best-selling author of the book On Fire. He's a world-class inspirational speaker, and he's the host of the Live Inspired Podcast. John interviews extraordinary individuals on their life story so that you can wake up from accidental living and more fully live your life story. Here's your host, John O'Leary. Well, hello, my friends, and welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. Dave Ramsey. Now, that's a name I would imagine many of you are familiar with. And if you're not, if that's the first time you are hearing the name Dave Ramsey, well, you have an opportunity to learn a lot more about Dave and the work he does because we recorded him early into the podcast journey. He's way back at episode number six. It was recorded about three and a half years ago and remains not only one of our most listened to and download episodes, but also one of our most relevant. It's about getting clear on your life by getting clear on your finances. Through my friendship and admiration for Dave, we've also had an opportunity of meeting a lot of his other leaders, his personalities, the talent that work within Ramsey Solutions. We've had Anthony O'Neill on our show. We've had Rachel Cruz on our show, among others. And today you're going to meet another Ramsey personality, someone else who works within Dave's organization, someone who, as you hear her story, her heart, and her ideas, you are going to absolutely fall in love, not only with this lady, with this author, with this podcaster, with this radio personality, with this human being, but maybe even more importantly by some of the ideas shared by Christy right here in a moment, with your life. Yeah, with the good things of your life, the family, the beauty, the nature, all that kind of stuff, but also letting go of some of the things that are keeping you from living the best of your life going forward. Chrissy Wright is the best-selling author of Take Back Your Time. She's also the host of the Christy Wright Show, is an expert in cultivating, listen to this one, balance. How many of us feel like we are wildly out of balance? Uh, my hand is up. Cultivating balance, ditching distractions, and prioritizing in your life through your example, through your actions, what actually matters. So on this type of episode, what I encourage you to do is to pour yourself a tall glass of water, coffee, or maybe something a bit stronger. Get out your favorite Live Inspired journal. You'll want to be taking some notes as I bring on a relevant speaker and a very cool human being. Her name is Christy Wright. Christy Wright, 
Welcome to Live Inspired with John O'Leary. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Dude, I am a huge fan. I love the fact that you're with us today, and I'm excited to not only talk more about your book, but about your life. So, so let's talk about your life today. If you and I bump carts at the grocery store, and I apologize and introduce myself to you and explain a little bit about who I am, Christy, and a little bit about my family and what I do professionally. And then I say, Christy, t- tell me about you. What do you do? How would you respond to that? Well, my official titles are author and speaker, and I've spent the last 10 years helping women start businesses. So side businesses and small businesses through my book and my events and all that stuff, which has been really fun. Um, But my unofficial titles that um, are more fun in some ways is I'm mom to three young kids, John, six, four, and one. There you go. So I'm in the trenches of the littles. And, um, and, and I just, I, I would say that I am a person that loves life. And so to me, I just see everything is this big adventure. I just want to make the most out of life, but I love helping other people do the same thing. And so that's really what, you know, when I've, when I've seen this pattern in the last 10 years of, of people starting businesses, a common problem that I hear about again and again and again is how do you have enough time for it all? And so that's, what's kind of led me to what I'm what I'm doing today with my new book on time management and life balance, but uh, but it's a lot of variety and I like it that way. <laughs> ton of variety, ton of chaos in the midst That's of right. the joy of life. My wife and I were talking over the weekend about when our kids were little. So now they are 15, 13, 11, and nine, which means at one point they were six, four, two, and a little baby. We were talking this weekend about how unbelievably challenging that time was. Looking back on it, it was far harder than we knew, but also it was far better than what we knew at the time. Yes. So kind of taking the dichotomy for a moment, what's the hardest part right now for you of being a parent? It is so physically exhausting. Like last night I was trying to teach my six-year-old to wash himself because I'm like, at some point this child is going to bathe himself, right? Like like someday, someday he will get clean and it won't be because of me. Will that happen, John? Tell me it'll happen. It's coming. So I'm like, you put the washcloth on your hand and then you rub and I come back and like nothing has happened as we have had more children, which we're so grateful for. We have three kids age six and under, but as we've had more, the oldest still isn't necessarily completely independent. I mean, he can mm-hmm. dress himself, but he still needs help brushing his teeth and all that. So we just added to the workload of the physical demands of keeping them alive and clean. And by eight o'clock at night, we're just so wiped. But I know it's a season. It's also a season of footy pajamas and snuggles. So I'm, I'm trying to soak that in too. So let's talk about the snuggles and then we'll, then we'll backtrack a little bit farther than the, the children in the bathtub. You're talking about the challenges and the exhaustion, but as you look at that bathtub, as you look at those three little, three little human beings, what's the best part right now for you of being a mama? Oh my gosh. So just how unique they are. Like we had one and then we got, we thought we had him figured out. So we had the second, we're like, oh, we know exactly what you need. You need a swaddle and a pacifier and here we go. We know how to get you to sleep. And just from the get-go, they're their own person, their own opinions, their own personality, their own. And I just think that's fascinating to watch. Like, it's just, it's incredible to watch them discover their world. And, and like my son Carter, like he is, he has the brain of an engineer, like to see how he views the world, which is so different than my son Carter. It's just, it's fascinating how unique they all are. And I just, I love to watch them and I love to learn from them. So let's go back in time, Christy, a little bit. Your own childhood, it it, it was not exactly this uh, idyllic childhood you're trying to provide for your own little kids in the bathtub. It was was a little bit more challenging 
and provided an awful lot of grit and a need for faith. Would, would you talk as much as you're open to it about your yeah. own childhood? So my mom, she and my dad split when I was six months old. She had never planned to be a single mom. And that's exactly where she found herself, you know, with a six month old baby, baby. And she had $64 to her name. And, and there was more than just differences between her and my dad. And so she was really just kind of went into survival mode to um, raise me, make a life for me and so on. And so she started a little bakery in the front showcase window of a candy store in downtown Nashville. 38 years later, she's still running that business. And it's had multiple moves and multiple locations and employees. And it's been a you know full-fledged small business. And now she's semi-retirement. But, but watching my mom run her business, um, shaped who I am in more ways than I probably even realized. Um, you know, we would go to her cake shop at two and three and four in the morning, mm. um, you know, when she had to go early and bake and I would go back to bed, I would, I would go to sleep on the flour sacks, like with a, with a comforter on these 50 pound bags of powdered sugar and flour. And then I'd go back to school, um, you know, at like six or seven, you know, when school started with, with the smell of flour in my hair. And I spent more time with her employees than I did my own friends. And, um, and, and I remember so much of the struggle. I remember because it was just her and me. I didn't have any siblings. She didn't, you know, she wasn't married and my dad was not in the picture at that time. He wasn't in the picture for the majority of my formative years from eight until 14. Um, I didn't see him at all. And, um, and so it was just, it was one of those times where you look back on that and you think, well, that was not Pinterest perfect. And I remember getting a flat tire in the rain. I remember going to the cake shop one time at like three in the morning and it had been broken into and we didn't know, you know, if, if someone was still inside. Mm -hmm. And I just, I remember those struggles and, and you would look at that thing like, oh my gosh, like, you know, that's so terrible. But what's interesting is I tell people all the time, especially single parents, especially entrepreneurs, your children are not going to make it despite the struggle. They're going to make it because of it. Because it was being in that struggle with my mom of watching her survived that shaped who I am. So she didn't sit down and teach me at the dinner table, character and integrity and work ethic and persistence and perseverance. She lived it out in front of me. And then I learned that and began to live it as well. And mm. so I just, I think there's such a message of hope for people that have less than perfect childhoods or, or, or parents, you know, that are looking at, oh, I'm harming my kids. You're not harming your kids by allowing them in the struggle with you. You're actually helping them because they're developing this resilience that is essential in life. And so I, I, I'm so thankful in that way for not only what a survivor my mom is, but for, for getting to be a participant in the struggle that made me who I am. I'm curious, Christy, when, when did you realize that this childhood and this mother of yours was maybe quite different than other kids around you in the neighborhood, in the school, that your, your mother was not just a mom, but an incredible example? Um, I did not, I realized that, those are two different things, John. Yeah. I realized we were different very early. I realized that it was good way later. Yeah. So I realized probably at age six or seven that we were different because I was ironing my own clothes. I remember being a high schooler going to the grocery store to get groceries because we never had groceries. Not because we didn't have the money. I mean, we, we did okay. We weren't rich by any means, but, but we had enough to get food. She just, my mom was not your you know, Susie homemaker mom. And she was exhausted when she wasn't at the cake shop. So if we were going to have groceries, um, I was going to get them and I made my own lunch. And, um, I remember, I mean, yeah, I ironing my clothes from the time that I was little. So I just remember re thinking like, well, my other friend's moms do this stuff for them. You know, they pack their lunch and they do the grocery shopping and stuff. I actually remember when I, there's one distinct memory going through the checkout line. Um, when I was 15 years old, 15 or 16, 
And the person checking me out at the grocery store went to my high school. They said, do you live alone? Because they couldn't conceive why a 16-year-old would be doing the grocery shopping for the family. And so I remember in a very negative way early on, just wanting to be normal, wanting to have a normal family, wanting to, you know, have whatever normal I thought looked like. That's all you want when you're a teenager, right? You just want to be normal. You just want to fit right in. But in college and after college, that's when I had such a different level of appreciation for um, what I learned from my mom and what a survivor I became because of her. But man, nothing like having kids. I can't fathom how she did it. You have such a different level of appreciation for your own parents when you become one. That's right. Because of everything you go through with them. And you think, oh, now I see how they loved me. I see how hard it was. I see. And you just, it. oh my gosh, like the, the gratitude, it just explodes. And perspective. So when, when I'm meeting folks at your presentations and uh, a woman or a gentleman comes up and says, I'm a single mom or a single dad, my heart just like triples in size because yeah. it, being a parent is so hard. It's so tiring. Running a business is so exhausting. And when you're doing this stuff by yourself, when there is maybe no support system for you to lean back into and snuggle up against, it, it, that type of individual is, um, I think, a true champion, a true hero. You had that in your mother. You go off to college. What, what was your desire? What were you trying to become? Oh, I had no idea. I went through so many phases, John. Right after college, I lived on a farm and like had a horse boarding business. In college, I thought I was going to work at an advertising agency in New York. And so I feel like a lot of it was just discovery. Like, you know, in those first, like from 18 to 25 or 26, just trying out different things. I, I went through this phase where I took Latin and ballroom dance lessons just for fun. I played on an adult soccer league. Like I was just, I was trying out different things to see, you know, who I was in this world. But it's just funny to think back to that now, how different, <laughs> how different my life is, thankfully. <laughs> So, you know, today, obviously, as I shared in the introduction, you are part of the Ramsey family. You're part of the Ramsey team. Yeah. You're a Ramsey personality and a best-selling author. H- how did they first hear about you? It's a weird story. So I worked in nonprofit right out of college and it was an incredible experience. I am so grateful for all that I learned there. I built my career for three years, but but anybody that's ever worked in nonprofit knows it can burn you out pretty quick. Um, not a lot of pay, but yes, a lot of hours. And then you're just, you just kind of can burn out. So after about three years of working 80 hours a week while also running this farm thing on the side by myself as a single, single girl, I I really felt like I was ready to do something different. I had no idea what, and I was standing on my deck one day and I was, I was thinking, but also kind of praying. I'm a person of faith. So I was kind of thinking, kind of praying. And I just thought, well, God, I don't think I'm ever going to find a company that I believe in as much as the YMCA. I love that we change lives. I love that we do work that matters. I want to do work that matters, that makes a difference. And the very next words that entered my mind were, you're going to work for Dave Ramsey. (laughs) And I thought, fantastic. Who is Dave Ramsey? And I walked over to my computer, which was open. My laptop was open on a table on my desk. And I Googled Dave Ramsey, had no idea who this was. And it said based in Nashville, Tennessee. And I was like, well, fantastic. I don't even have to move. I'm from Nashville. And I applied for a position as a project manager. And I got the position and I worked for five years in project management, really running all aspects of the details of our kids' products. So youth Bible studies and teen, teen books and juniors adventure banks and and all that kind of stuff for five years um, when I very first started. How I got here was very, um, I mean, I'm a person of faith, so I feel like that was God leading me. You come from this wild background and this example from a mother into college, into the YMCA, onto the farm. 
praying for guidance. You end up with Dave Ramsey. When did they, or when did you start realizing that, you know what, maybe in addition to project management, I, I, can, um, I can share a little bit of my heart with his listeners and readers and audience. John, honest to goodness, I never had that thought. So while how I came to work here is weird, how I came to do what I do is weird as well. So I'll share that story really quickly. So I started here in fall of 2009 and I started as a project manager. I was managing all the, I was in the publishing department, managing all the kids books and stuff. Like I said, well, this was September of 2009. So in the spring of 2010, Dave's daughter, Rachel Cruz was going to be graduating college that May. And she was going to be coming on board to work for our company. Now, this is back in the day. We had 200 people at our company. We have a thousand now. There were no Ramsey personalities, no other speakers, no other authors. It was just Dave. Dave was the brand. He was also the owner and see all speaking, all anything went through him. Well, Rachel was going to come on board and she was going to be kind of the face of the youth and teen market. That's the way we called it. The face of the youth and teen market. Okay. So in that spring, there was a man in my department and publishing department that organized that Rachel was going to go speak at their conference that summer. So summer of 2010, he set up the whole arrangement. They made the, the deal. It was going to be 20 different dates all over the country and so on. Well, as they get deeper into this partnership, he hands it off to me. Well, about two weeks before she's supposed to go on the road. So this is May. I've been there six months. I'm like 25 years old. I get the travel schedule from the conference representative. And John, it is the worst flights imaginable. Like they booked the cheapest things through, through Expedia. You had two and three connections. You were going to New York's California to get to Texas. You were going to be at an airport 18 hours a day. And then you were going to the next city and state the next day and the next city and state the next day and so on all summer for 20 different states, 20 different dates. Well, because I inherited this whole deal, I had to go to Dave, our CEO and her dad and get this approved. So I go to Dave. And he said, well, she's not doing this. This is more than we ever agreed to. This is, this is crazy. No one should do this schedule. She can do 10 of these dates. So they can pick which 10, but she can only do 10. So I was like, okay. So I go back to the conference. I get to be the bearer of bad news. Now, John, I'm a kind of fly by the seat of my pants kind of girl. Like I make it up as I go. So I hadn't really thought through how this conversation was going to go. I just thought through the point at which I would deliver the bad news. And then we'll just play it by ear from here. Right. So I get on the phone with this guy. I'm so young. I'm like, well, I'm so sorry. You know, it, this is more than we agreed to. So she's not going to be able to do all 20 dates. She can do 10. And hey, good news. You can pick which 10 she comes to, but she can't do all 20. I'm so sorry. And he said, Christy, what am I going to do? I didn't book her for 10 dates. I booked her for 20. What am I going to do for the other 10 dates? And I said, well, I'll do them. He said, can you speak? I said, I think so. I've never spoken in my life, God. Never spoken in my life. Didn't ask permission, didn't get approval, nothing. So then that summer I go on the road with Rachel and I go to every one of those dates that she did. And I ran her AV and props. And then I would go to the next city and do the keynote myself, the next city, meet up with her and so on all summer long. Well, that fall, our company identified a need for more speakers because Dave was turning down 3000 requests a year. And so they created what was then called at the time, the Ramsey Speakers Group. And it had five men and two women, Rachel Cruz and myself, no audition, no application, no interview. They just slid me in because I had done a good job that summer. And that now, of course, has evolved into the Ramsey personalities where each of us are speakers and authors and so on. But I did speaking on the side in addition to project management for five years. I did it for a long time before I ever was doing this full time. 
it's another great story of how things I'm full of stories <laughs> not plan this out you know we're also focused on where we want to go and yet every single story you've shared so far is about uh shutting your eyes and taking a step and well, then taking the next step and then taking the next well there's the there's such an important lesson in there and so and i don't want people to miss this because i, I work with a lot of women and one of the things that women are guilty of and this is not just my perspective research backs this up Women can be so timid, hesitant, fearful, whatever, underestimate themselves. Research shows this. Women do not apply for a job unless they have 100% of the qualifications, where a man will apply for a job if he has 60% of the qualifications. Here's the takeaway from my story of how I got to do what I'm doing today. Not because you need to do what I'm doing, but just as a lesson. When you go back to that moment on the phone, and that man had a problem that he didn't have a speaker for those dates. If you would have said, Christy, are you qualified? Do you have experience? Do you have any right? Did you even ask anybody? No, no on all fronts. I was 25 years old. I've been at the company six months. I had no right to do that. But I said yes before I knew how. I said yes to an opportunity before I knew how I was going to do it. I said yes to solving a problem before I knew how I was going to solve it. I said yes to moving forward and making a difference before I knew how exactly I was going to flesh that out. Say yes before you know how because you'll learn how to do the thing by actually doing the thing. I love how um, Sheryl Sandberg said in her book, Lean In, some of the most incredible career opportunities are not positions that are posted, but problems that you solve. And that thing becomes your job. And that has certainly been true in my story, but you can apply that lesson to anything in life. Mm -hmm. Say yes before you know how, and you'll learn how to do it by doing it. I love how um, also Seth Godin says, he says, "If, if you wait until you have success to commit, you'll have neither. You have to commit before you have success. It's in doing the thing that you learn how to do the thing. Well said, Seth and Christy, right? And and Christy, I've had, as you know, because we've met several times in the past, the opportunity of speaking a couple thousand times around the world. And I've only really, really been nervous, I don't know, four times or so, a couple times in penitentiaries, federal prisons. Like I, re- I really get anxious before I speak to, to those guys. And I think it's mostly out of um, humility. Like I just, I want to meet them where they are and encourage them and love them right as they are where they are. So for me, I take that very seriously. The other audience that completely freaks me out every single time is Wednesday mornings, 9 a.m. or so in Nashville, Tennessee <laughs> to the Ramsey organization. You and me both, John. We're um, a tough crowd around here. I well, get Well, that's where I'm going with this question too. in a moment. <laughs> You, you know, you got brother Dave in the front row and the entire team around him and, and there's you and the entire team and it was hundreds. Now it's more than a thousand. And all of them are experts who have had the very best teachers and speakers on their stage week after week. They, they know what's good and they know what's not. They know what's authentic. They know what's not. And so like for me, like it's really uh, it's a litmus test every single time to make sure I serve them well. But I get really nervous. If I'm being honest. I've heard a report that you've also had the opportunity of, of sharing at Devos. Would you t- talk through that story and why you were so hesitant to deliver the speech in the first place? Well, it's terrifying. And let me just let your heart rest at ease because you are the highest rated Devo speaker every year you speak. So just you just <laughs> relax because you are so loved around this place and you're so good. Really, the story only makes sense from my faith framework of the world. And I know that's not everybody's, but I will say um, I've had several moments in my life that I couldn't explain other than it was God doing something because it didn't make any kind of logical sense, John. 
where there have been times where it's truly an out-of-body experience. And I know that sounds crazy, like I'm one of those woo-woo people. It's not that, but all this is to say how I got to speak at Devo. I never wanted to speak at Devo. It's a known thing that Ramsey personalities don't want to speak at Devo because of exactly what you said. It is a tough crowd. (laughs) They can be, dare I say it, a little entitled because they do have the best speakers. They're like, well, I don't like how they said that one thing seven minutes in. You know, it's like, they can be tough. And then, and then there's also something about speaking to your people. It's actually harder, I think, to speak to people right. you know that know you than speaking to complete strangers, right? And so all that combined, none of us ever want to speak at Devo, ever. None of the Ramsey personalities. And so in fall of 2017, I had been speaking on this Christian women's event. And so I'd been around all these amazing speakers and had just been really like growing in my faith. And I felt like God was teaching me a lot of things. And so I'm sitting on my couch right before Christmas and I pick up my phone and I text Jeremy Breland, who is my leader at the time. And he also helps coordinate who speaks for Devos. And I text him, Hey, Jeremy, God has been teaching me a lot lately. So if you ever want me to speak for Devo, just um, let me know. I'd be, I'd be open to it. And I pressed send and I literally dropped my phone. I was like, Oh, what did I do? Because it was truly like an out-of-body experience. I would never want to do Devo. Why did I do that? Why did I text him that? Why did I commit? Now I'm going to have to do it. Jeremy texted me back. Great. January 2nd. <laughs> as in like eight days later. And I was like, oh my gosh. So I, I spent, you know, between Christmas and New Year's, um, that week of holiday, writing my first devotional that I was going to give, which was very different than giving a talk to seek God about what he wanted to say, what I was supposed to say, what scripture I was supposed to teach, and then unpacking scripture and doing all the research and all that was a new experience in that way for me. And I gave that talk. And John, I mean, I came alive in a way I can't explain. And I've done it every first Devo of the year since then. Wow. I'm four years now. It is such an honor and such a gift and so humbling to your point, so humbling to get to bring the word of God to your coworkers. But again, it was one of those like, Say yes before you know how, or just commit and then force yourself to follow through. I don't know, but it was definitely never my idea. I was definitely never like, oh, I want to do Devo. No, no, it was just something I texted Jeremy. And then I think God and his, and his plan wanted me to go through with it. Well, you texted a great man. Jeremy Breland is a dear friend of mine. I love the man. So tell him I said, hello. Let's talk about your most recent work. You got a book out right now called Take Back Your Time. Take yes. back your time. You know, you, you, you are in the business of content creation, yep. whether on your show or with Dave sitting at your side, whatever it might be, all day long you're creating content. You could go in a million different directions. Why did you choose the topic of this book? It is the number one thing I'm asked. And probably the number one thing I struggle with, John, if I'm honest, like in 10 years of speaking and teaching and coaching and all the things, the number one question I get is how do you balance it all? How do you balance it all? How do you balance everything? And we've got all these analogies juggling balls, spinning plates, walking the tightrope, all the things. And the truth is we can do all that and still feel out of balance and feel haunted by this elusive idea that we're supposed to be more balanced. We're supposed to have more work-life balance. We're supposed to be more productive, more efficient, multitask more. If we could just wake up earlier, just stay up later, just have to run faster in between. And gosh, we do all that. We do all that. We try really hard and we still feel out of balance. We still feel as if something's not right. We don't know what balance is. We're just sure we don't have it. Mm. And so it becomes this, this shadow that haunts us. And so I wanted to take this opportunity to write on a subject that I've certainly experienced in my own life as a struggle, but it's the number one struggle I've seen in anybody I've worked with men or women, parents or not. 
And I wanted to shine light on it in a new way. I wanted to bring a new definition of balance and give you tactical steps of how to create it in your life. So it's no longer just operating at the surface of rearranging the puzzle pieces of our calendar, Mm -hmm. but getting to the root issue of why we feel out of balance in the first place and fixing it there so that it can be fixed once and for all. Beautiful. And when when I think of balance, there's two things that immediately came to mind as you were talking. One is like Lady Justice with her eyes covered, holding the scale. Balance, you know, total balance, left and right, work and home or whatever it might be. The other, and you quote them quite a bit actually in your your work, Zig Ziglar. Ziglar used to take folks through an activity where ultimately what he sought for us was to be tense at all these different areas. Perfect balance, professionally and financially, perfect tense all the way around. That's, that was at one point his idea of balance. And I think probably one of the challenges is that's most of our perspectives on balance, to be attentive to everything all the time at every season in life. You have a different take. So how, how do you understand what balance is today? Well, I think that my take on balance is necessary in the new world we live in. So when Zig Ziglar was writing, we lived in a very different world than we do today. So you think about what life balance looked like in the 50s. I mean, my gosh, like it, you, you had a 40 hour work week, you were done at five o'clock, you had family dinner around the dinner table, you did not have a cell phone in your pocket and you went to the sock hop. Like, you know what I mean? Like it was not the world we live in. Not that there was not demands, but it wasn't even a fraction of the connectivity, the technology, the demands and opportunity that we have today that are pulling at us at all times saying, hey, my thing is the most important. And so I I created a new definition of balance uh, that I think is not only necessary, but I think it's the most accurate version of balance um, that we're actually after. Because like I said, we have all these analogies, but we can do all that and still feel out of balance. And so I started asking a different question. What if balance isn't so much something you do, how you balance it all, like you said, like a verb, like scales. What if instead balance is something you create in your life, like where you could actually become balanced in an out of balance world, where you could be balanced and still be busy, where balance looks more like peace, being confident in your choices when you say yes to this thing or no to that thing, being proud of how you spend your time. I think that that is what we're actually after when we say we want balance. I don't think we care about the idea of balance. I think we care about our life and being proud of how we spend our time. I think it's less about the calendar and more about enjoying the life that the calendar represents. And so the the definition of life balance that I have written this book around, this is the thesis of the whole book. Mm -hmm. Life balance is not doing everything for an equal amount of time. It's about doing the right things at the right time. And when you do the right things at the right time, you will actually feel that sense of balance you've been looking for. And here's the great news. You get to decide what's right for you. You get to decide what your version of balance looks like in any new season of your life. And by the way, that's the only version of balance that should matter to you anyway. Mm. So Christy, a lot of times on these shows, I just encourage folks to sit back, pull the car over, grab a Kleenex and just get ready to to like rock and roll some emotion. You know, just like... (laughs) just be blown away by this war here or what she's done or the mountain he climbed or how they overcame cancer, the impact they're making in Haiti. That's part of the goal of the show. Other times, and I think it's about to be the process you and I are about to walk through, it is about to have people grab their journal, grab a pen and get ready to make someone else's story, someone else's process about them. 
mm-hmm. and about their journey and about their life balance and about them living into that with great joy and optimism going forward into their lives. So that that's a commercial, my friends, for you to grab your favorite BIC right now, grab your favorite app, turn the thing on and get ready to take some notes as Christy Wright guides us through her process to make sure that you enjoy not balance as much as your life, your life. The, the very first thing you say and you suggest we do is to decide what really matters. Yeah. So when I, when I talk to people about, you know, do the right things at the right time, you need to know what the right things are. And I don't tell you in my book, what's right for you. Only you can decide it's your life and you get to decide what matters to you specifically, even what matters in this season, because the season that you're in will determine what matters to you. John, what mattered to me when I was 16 was who I was going to ride to the football game with on Friday night. Right. What mattered to me in my twenties was building my career at the nonprofit. What mattered to me when I had my first son Carter was just figuring out how to be a mom to this newborn baby. So you have to consider the season you're in as you walk through these five tactical steps. And so the first step, like you said, is just to decide what matters. What matters to you right now? What's most important specifically? Now, I want to call out uh, a temptation because when we talk about what matters, we talk about priorities. And I get into that in the book. People tend to think of priorities as this set it and forget it thing. Like my priorities are God, other self in that order. And that is a fantastic Sunday school answer. And that's very impractical for real lifetime management of how you're going to manage your Tuesday. So what I want to help people do is understand that, yes, you have fixed priorities, that if push comes to shove and all hell breaks loose, that's what matters most. But the rest of the time, we need flexible priorities. So that is what matters right now. For this season, what matters? For this week, what matters? For this day, what matters? What matters most? And And it can be so specific and tactical. In the spring, I decided that one of my top priorities for the spring was getting my boys to swim. It's so simple. But you know what? Because I decided it was a priority, I then put time to help them learn how to swim on my calendar. And then I enrolled them in swim lessons in the summer. And now both of my boys are like going off the high dive and swimming like fish. That didn't happen by accident. It happened because I decided it was important. And so you get to decide what that is for you, whether it's launching a book or being present for your, for your kids or being at every soccer game or going on date nights with your spouse or running a marathon or launching a big project at work or starting a new nonprofit. I don't know what it is for you, but you get to pick a few things, not 35 things, maybe three to five, three to five things that are your top priorities in this season. You say, this is what makes the cut. Everything else can fall below the line, but this is what matters most. And so the first step is just to decide The second step is to stop doing what doesn't matter. Now, listen, we spend a lot of time on things that don't matter to us. And I go into all the addictive nature of technology in in this chapter, but there's also a lot of other things that are temptations to steal our time, even if we don't realize it. The temptation to be the hero, the temptation to save the day, the temptation to make other people's problems your problem. There's lots of temptations that if we're not careful, will suck us into running our lives for everyone else all the time. And then we have no time left over for what actually matters. So step two is to stop, do stop doing what doesn't matter. And you'll be amazed that when you start cutting out stuff that doesn't actually matter to you, things that are not important, how much time you open up for things that do matter. And I'm going to quote you, you know, I read your book over the weekend, loved it and uh, have a brevity on about every third page right now. (laughs) This is on uh, I don't page 42, I believe. If we are not careful, we will spend our entire lives checking boxes and never stopping to ask ourselves, 
if those boxes represent anything actually worth doing. I love that quote. Tell, tell me. It's true. Uh, it's me true because we're so addicted to productivity, John. We just put things on our to-do list. We're like, oh my gosh, I'm so good at checking things off. And we're doing stuff that's stupid. That's not even important. That's taking away time from things that are important. And so, yeah, just the simple practice of asking yourself, what matters to me on my calendar? What matters to me on my to-do list? What matters to me? And cutting out the crap that does not matter. Man, we have so much more margin if we would cut that stuff out. Okay. When I, I think even the way you said that is brilliant. The, the, the first list ought to be relatively short. The second list ought to be incredibly long. And yeah. it ultimately leads to the third, which as you know, you, you wrote the book, this is your process to actually create the schedule. Talk about that. Yes. So here's one of the things I say, and so many people say, I live by my calendar. Oh, I live by my calendar, live by my calendar. If it's not on the calendar, it's not gonna happen. But then all those things we listed in step one aren't on the calendar, right? Sleep. Uh, working out, quiet time, time with your spouse, maybe a new hobby. It's not on the calendar. The only thing on your calendar is like running errands for your kids, going to meetings and dentist appointments, things that aren't exactly life-giving in many cases. And so what I want to help you do as tactical as it is in this step is put the things that you care about on your calendar so that they actually happen. Research shows that when you write something down, whether it's a goal or a task or an intention, whatever, it's 42% more likely to happen just because you wrote it down. And so we cannot possibly live by our calendars and then not put the things that we care about most on our calendars and then wonder why they don't happen. They don't happen because that we did not put them on the system we've chosen to live our lives by. So I'll walk you through a very practical exercise of how to create your ideal schedule taking into consideration the things you have to do, like work and school and all those things, and then moving things over that actually matter to you. So your, your calendar begins to reflect those things that matter most. Good. Take me through a specific example of what that might look like in action, Chris. Okay, great. One of the things that we tend to do when we want to fix the calendar is we just move the puzzle pieces around. When you move the puzzle pieces around, you have the same calendar in a different order, Okay. The, that's not the problem. What we want to do is you want to start with a blank slate. So I recommend people get a blank calendar. You can print it off, use it on a paper calendar, app on your phone, whatever. A blank sample week. You're going to you're going to take your current schedule, your current week, just pick a sample week, next week, whatever, and sit it next to your blank schedule. And we're going to get begin to move things over in this order. So the first set of items you're going to move from your current schedule to your new schedule are things you have to do. You have to work at your full-time job. You have to sleep at night, most likely. You have to take your kids to school, potentially. Like, it's very, very few things that fall in this category, okay? You don't have to do that volunteer thing every Sunday night, okay? We'll get to that. But you just move things you really have to do. I do want to call out, and I go into detail in the book, but if at this stage you're moving things to your ideal schedule and you realize that you are moving some things over that you hate, Let's say you have a full-time job that you hate. It's toxic. It's a toxic culture. It drains the life out of you. You've got to make a note to start to make a change yeah. because you can never feel balanced if you spend a large portion of your time doing something you hate. So you move over things you have to do. Then you begin to move over things from your current calendar to your new ideal calendar that you want to do. What are those things on your current calendar that are awesome, that are fun, that are great, that are important to you right now, that are in line with your priorities? in this season that are in line with those things that matter most, move them over. 
then you begin to add new things. What are things on this? What, what on your ideal schedule is missing? Maybe workouts, maybe time with your spouse, maybe time uh, taking a new class you want to take, um, a new hobby you've always wanted to have time for, maybe an earlier bedtime so you're more rested, so you have energy for these things. Actually block it, everything, anything on your calendar. Now, this is not restrictive. You get to make it look like whatever you want it to. But what's so interesting is when you begin to decide, let's say bedtime, for example, let's say that you set a bedtime and you put it on your calendar. This is just an exercise. And you say, I want to head up at nine o'clock PM, start getting ready for bed till 930, you know, context out whatever bedtime routine and read from 930 to 10 and you're asleep by 10 o'clock. If you set that in mind and you put it on paper, it's so much more likely that it will actually happen versus it's 11 o'clock PM and you're scrolling Instagram and you wake up tired and grouchy the next day and you skip your workout and you're mean to your kids because you didn't get the sleep that you needed. Simply deciding to put something as tactical as a bedtime on your calendar can help you actually do the things that you say you want to do that would help you. So that, that so then you move more. So now you're left with your ideal calendar. You've got things you have to do, things you want to do, and new things you never had time for before. You'll probably notice there's some things on your old calendar that didn't make the cut. This is great. You realize they're not important to you anymore. That's totally fine. And then the way that you begin to live your ideal schedule, I don't want you just walking out on all your commitments. That's not a good way to create balance or build relationships, by the way. But what you can do is you can begin to make, I recommend 25% of changes per week. So maybe this week you cut out some screen time and you get some help with childcare to have a little bit more time for some of those, those workouts. The next week, you um, find someone to take on one of those commitments that you're not really, your heart's not in anymore, and you start cutting back your hours on this other thing that, that you don't care about as much. The third week, 25 more percent of changes. In a month, you should be working your ideal calendar. And it's not because you just completely walked out on everything, but you, with wisdom and gradually and intentionality, started to actually control your calendar versus your calendar controlling you. Because here's the thing I think so many people missed on. You are not a victim to your calendar or your to-do list. Anything on your calendar is something you put there or something you allowed to be there. My friend Rory Baden said that. I love that. Same as with your to-do list. Anything on your to-do list is something you put there or allowed to be there. You already have control over your time, your calendar, your to-do list, and your life. You just need to live like it. I don't need to give you that control. You already have it. You just need to live like it. And so this is a practical way for you to begin to take back that control and spend your time on what you actually care about. So I, I can need a couple hands coming up in the back of the room right now from the moms and the dads and the uncles, the aunties, the grandparents who are recognizing the, yeah, they have their life and their responsibilities and their workflow and the dinners they want to prep and the walks they want to take and the sleep they want to get. And Christy, they're responsible for the life of another yes. or two human beings or four human beings yeah. in my case. And when you add up all those schedules, I'm back to having no time doing nothing that I actually want, Christy, right? What would you say to me? So for yes. folks out there right now saying, hey, this makes a lot of sense for someone in their early 20s, perhaps, or someone who's in the retirement season yeah. of life, but for the rest of us, maybe not yeah. so much. Well, I hear you. And let me say this. No one understands more than me. I've got three kids under age six. My husband and I work full time. I'm also in seminary and I'm launching a book. I get it. Time is hard hard to find when you have a lot of interest and a lot of responsibilities. But that goes back to a very simple question that you can ask yourself. What's right right now? What's right right now? So what's right for me right now? Like, let me give you some examples, John. 
there's some things I want to do. I want to go to Europe. I want to buy a pontoon boat. I want to get a dog. There's some things I want to do. It's not that they're never right. They're just not right right now. Going to Europe's not right right now for me, nor is getting a dog right now. <laughs> but when I ask myself what's right right now, I can shake the guilt of all the things that are not right right now and the FOMO. So I can say, what does balance look like in this season? Okay, for me, as a mom of three young kids, I want to get my work right and I want to get my kids right. I want to be present with my kids and have fun with my kids. I'm going to visualize what that what success looks like. What's right right now is hanging out with my kids. So here's what that means. That means that I don't sign my kids up for 15 activities. I'm not driving them all over creation. We, we do stuff. We do swim lessons. We're staying in swim lessons once a week. That's the one thing we're doing in the off season. And I just signed my son Conley up for gymnastics one day a week. So we have two commitments, one of which happens actually during the school day right after school. So it's right alongside that. So, so while it may look like, oh, I can't do anything. No, we can. We just have to figure out what balance looks like in this season. So I'm going to pull back all the commitments here. I might say no to some birthday parties on the weekend. Guess what? Just because someone sent you an invitation to a birthday party doesn't mean you have to go. Just because someone recruited you to be the homeroom mom doesn't mean you have to say yes. I say no to a lot of things in order to make room for those things that do matter. And, and one of the things that I've noticed, John, and this is something I've just become more aware of in, in launching this book and talking to people, I think women are really guilty of this. We judge others by everything that they do. And we judge ourselves by what we don't do. Yeah. So I see all the moms out there rocking it with their kids that seem very well-behaved with clean faces and matching clothes. And I'm like, well, I'm a failure because I look at my goldfish that's smushed in the corner of my couch. See. If we could begin to understand that we're all doing a lot of things right, we're all doing a few things wrong, and that's okay. It gives us permission to focus on what we're doing right and be proud of that. And go, okay, I, I use the, the analogy in the book of, of the house. I, I, I cannot keep, keep the whole class, house clean at one time. I mean, I could, but I have absolutely no life and I want to have a life. So I've chosen which rooms to fight for and which rooms to let go. So I care deeply about the kitchen, my bedroom, and the living room. So I'll work hard to keep those clean the bonus room and the kids room and the deck, I let them go. Now, while this is an analogy, you can apply this to anything in life. When I walk in the playroom and it's a mess, I don't feel like a failure anymore because I've chosen that mess. To me, that mess represents time better spent somewhere else. So for all the the moms that feel like, oh my gosh, I'm running ragged to all these things, which things are important to you? Which things are important to your family? And by the way, everything I teach in the book, is a jumping off point for a conversation with your family. It's the challenge at the end of every chapter. Sit down with your spouse and say, hey, here's what's important to me in this season. What's important to you? Here's what my priorities are. What's, what are your priorities? Or even this week, my husband and I do this every Sunday night. Hey, what does this week look like for you? What have you got going on? What have I got going on? If you've got older kids, invite them into this. Hey, what, what activities do you want to do this year? Do you want to run around and play travel baseball all summer? Or do you want to go to the, go to the pool? and hang out with your friends. Sometimes we just do what we've always done and we do what all the other parents do. And so we end up running ourselves into the ground. And again, similar to the to-do list, we never stop and ask ourselves if those things are worth doing. Hmm. If they are, cool, do them. To me, staying in some lessons this year is worth doing. I'm going to drive there. I'm going to get them ready and we're going to stay in it. But I choose that. And that's one of my top priorities. And there's a lot of things I choose to say no to. So I think, I think it comes down to realizing that you're not a victim having a conversation with your spouse to figure out what success looks like and saying yes to those things and saying no to everything else. 
coach you through Christy through your your coaching and through your books and through your programming through your show you have these conversations with individuals now all over the country and all over the world who leave inspired to to do but then they have to take action right when the phone call ends or the, they, they read the last page or they, they get inspired from the podcast, whatever it might be. For those right now who are like, man, I, I love what is being said. I like the process, but I've got to pick up my kids at school. The, the dog yeah. is barking. The kitchen's yeah. filthy. I, I got to go. I got to run to the next thing. What, what's one thing we can do as we get ready to shift into the, to the Live Inspired 7 that you hope, man, before life gets busy, John, I want them to do this one thing. Well, I would say just this tactical thing they can do tomorrow. Like, let's give them some, I love tactical. Like here's action steps you can do. Something you could do tomorrow, especially for my parents. Anybody that's up there, their parents. Wake up before your children. I don't care their age and I don't care what time they wake up. Unless you have a newborn that's not sleeping. Wake up before your kids. And then you give yourself 15 to 30 minutes to just plan your day, have some quiet time, even think about what you want that day to look like. And that time is such a gift. Here's why, especially for the women. When you wake up before your kids, you wake up as you, not as mom. When I wake up with my kids, I wake up just screaming in my ear. I need milk. Where's my clean clothes? He looked at me wrong. I want a goldfish. I want cookies for breakfast. I just wake up to yelling in my ear. When I wake up as me, I wake up to this beautiful silence. I have a cup of coffee and actually get to drink it while it's still hot, which is an actual miracle on earth with my children. (laughs) And I get to think about my day. I get to pray and journal, think about what I'm grateful for, think about what I want my day to look like, what's a priority. I can think straight. You can't think straight when you're running to pick your kids up and when you're when you're running on fumes and coffee and, and adrenaline. You've got to get some time, whether it's an earlier bedtime, waking up before your kids, hiding in the bathroom and locking the door, or sitting in your car for a few minutes. You've got to get some time alone to think clearly, to think about what this means to you. What's right right now for you? What does life balance look like for you? What's important to you that you're not spending time on that you want to make time for? When you get alone and get some silence and can think clearly, I think you'll see and you'll find what those things are. And that's a, that's a huge first step to doing any of this. Well, the book is called Take Back Your Time. Christy, we have seven questions that we've had the honor of guiding about 375 previous guests through. So now we're going to guide you through the gauntlet right now. They're called the Live Inspired Seven it always begins with question number one, what is the most impactful book, most inspirational book, most transformational book you've ever read? Most recently, one I can think of is The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry by John Mark Comer. Wow, cool. Transformative. Absolutely transformative. I don't know it. Oh, it's so good, especially for high achievers. It very much informed my book. It's fascinating. It's changed. It's truly changed how I live my life. What, what's one positive characteristic or one trait that you possessed as a little girl growing up in Nashville, watching your mom do her thing that you wish you exhibited as brilliantly today? Oh, I'm going to cry when I say this. I think this is probably true of all kids, but I, I guess with my story, with my dad, it takes on a different way. Just um, such innocence. You know, mm-hmm. there was just such an innocence before, before you got the wound that taught you you have to be hard and you have to do it all yourself and you can't trust anybody. I'm an Enneagram eight, very by the book, if anybody's familiar with Enneagram. Um, and I'm very classic with the dad wound that taught me to be hard and not trust. So probably that innocence before that happened. Mm, thank you. Beautiful share. If your home caught fire and your three little babies and that husband of yours are out safely along with their goldfish and you have an opportunity to run in and grab one item, What's the one thing you come racing back outside with? Pictures, I think. I have a bin of pictures. I know that's so silly, but I actually have a really bad memory. 
it's something I hate about myself. And so pictures help me remember things. I mean, I don't have like a problem. I don't want people like write in doctor suggestions for me. I don't have like an issue. I just really don't have a good memory. And so when I see pictures, I'm like, oh, I forgot about that. I forgot about that. And so all those pictures from before digital cameras, before USB drives, you know, are in a bin. And so, yeah, probably pictures. <laughs> if you could sit on a bench on a gorgeous day and have a long conversation with anyone living or dead, who do you want to be seated next to? Maya Angelou. Why Maya? I love people that have a story and I would just want to hear her story from her own words. And she's also just, just seems to embody brilliance and grace and class and unbelievable wisdom. I just, I, I think of all the virtues I want in life and there's so many good ones to one and humility and God and all the things, but I just think that wisdom, I just want wisdom. I don't want, you know, I just, I want depth and insight um, and wisdom. And she was so wise. What, what's the best advice, whether it came from, from Maya or your mother or Dave Ramsey or anyone else along the way, what's the best advice you've ever received? Well, I'll just keep on that theme with Maya Angelou because this, um, this quote has been in my mind lately. She said this, people will forget what you say. They will forget what you do. They'll never forget how you made them feel. And I think if we could remember that, especially in our world, gosh, what, what, how that would drive how we act. What would you tell your 20 year old self? You're going to get married. Stop freaking (laughs) out. (laughs) I was, I was a bridesmaid approximately 497 times, John. And I was sure God had forgotten me all through my twenties, not just when I was 20, but all through my twenties. I mean, I just look back and I'm like, you were a baby. What were you worried about? Oh my gosh. Final question for Christy <laughs> Brown is this. Uh, Christy, it has been said that all great people and authors and personalities and mothers and spouses and daughters can have their lives summed up in one sentence. How would you like your one sentence to read? It's a verse. Um, it's the verse that I put in the front of my book, Business Boutique, when I wrote it, um, which applies to business, but applies to, I think, anything in life. First um, Thessalonians 5.24. The one who calls you is faithful and he will do it. Chrissy, your life is proof of that verse that you have been faithful and together you have been doing it. It's uh, an incredible life. It's a worthy book and it's a great process for the rest of us to follow. The book is called Take Back Your Life by number one national bestselling author, Christy Wright. My friends, that is Christy Wright. My name is John O'Leary and today is your day. Live inspired. Well, my friends, I hope you enjoyed the conversation today with Christy Wright as much as I enjoyed bringing it to you and our team enjoys bringing it to you. There's a lot from the conversation that resonated with me today, and I'm sure there's plenty that also resonated with you. Two things that really leap off at me as I wrap up the conversation and get us moving forward into our lives so that you and I can take back our lives again. Number one is this. It wasn't so much the words that her mother spoke that influenced her life. Yeah, that's part of it. Words do matter. We all know that. It was the example. It was the example of how she showed up. It was the example of how she treated others. It's the example of how she rolled up her sleeves during the good days, but also during the difficult days to get the important stuff of life and of work done. 
Example matters. Example matters. Pay attention to the example you are setting for those that you are trying to lead forward in life today. So pay attention to that. That's number one. The second piece was this. It's a quote actually she shared that I wrote down. Start doing, John, and leaders and family listening in right now, start doing what matters most. Stop doing what doesn't really matter and start taking action on that right now in this season. So start doing what matters. Stop doing what does not and start doing it right now in this season of life. Why do we put it off? Why do we wait? Why do we schedule it for a week out or a month out or we'll get to it in 2022? Not now. Stop the bad stuff. Start the good stuff and begin right now. It's a great reminder from Christy Wright. The interview was packed with other great examples. All the Ramsey personalities that we've had on the show in the past have some amazing insights to share. There's a productivity expert named Tanya Dalton. She's episode 106. But to learn more about Christy Wright's book, The Other Ramsey Personalities, or Tanya Dalton, what I encourage you to do is to check out the entire Live Inspired movement over here at JohnO'LearyInspires.com. And then just follow your fingers over to the link that says podcast. You can read the show notes there. You can learn more about this episode, other episodes we can bring your way. And also ideas on how you can rate the show, subscribe to the show, and share the show. We appreciate you being part of this show and part of our community. So for this time and until next time, my name is John O'Leary. Today is your day. Take back your time, take back your life, and live inspired. Our friends at El Keeley are incredibly dedicated to quality, ensuring that they do the right work the first time. Their founder and my friend, his name is Larry Keeley, has always said that quality and service never go out of style. After four decades of proving that truth in his construction business, their customer-centric approach is evident in every single project they touch. Learn more about their work and how they can impact you and your business at keeleycompanies.com.